Clubhouse. Welcome to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home with your hosts, Beth Kushnick and Caroline Daly. Hey, Beth. Hey, Caroline. I'm so excited for episode four of season three here. We're talking with Richard Hankins today. He's a production designer on NYPD Blue and a great friend of yours. I'm so excited he's going to join us with a really great interview. You guys are going to love it later on in this episode. Beth Thank you so much for bringing Richard to our listeners. He was fantastic. It's a great interview because I had the opportunity to work with Richard on a yearly basis for probably over a decade every summer and started out in the fall as well that NYPD Blue came to New York and we did what was called a New York unit. And I've done many a New York units. It's when a portion of the TV show or movie is shot in New York. And they're usually enormous films that require specific locations that are only New York-based. One of my first New York unit jobs was actually Weekend at Bernie's 2. So that goes back many, many years. And I've done everything from the first National Treasure, which we shot on the Intrepid, to a huge New York unit for the movie The Insider with Al Pacino. I've done actually two New Hampshire units on the first Jumanji. This is when... There's a lot of prep and a lot of sharing with the other unit of the film. I've done a lot of work on films that were shot in Canada and then come to New York. We tend to do a lot of exteriors, but again, big scenes where it might be a different period. It might be running a couple of blocks long of streets in the city, closing down Times Square, things that you usually do at four o'clock in the morning on a weekend, but uh, (laughs) a lot of planning and a lot of really ambitious film work. So to clarify for our listeners, I mean, a show like NYPD Blue, people expect 100% to be filmed on the streets of New York. That's what they're seeing on their television screen. But in reality, the majority is being shot elsewhere, and they only do how long? Like a week or two in New York City? Yeah, they come for a compressed amount of time. Sometimes in big feature films, they'll shoot the New York unit at the end of the movie or sometimes in the middle of the film and then go back. For instance, when I worked on Anchorman 2, they came up here from Atlanta to shoot a New York unit and and finished here. New York units can involve helicopter work, those vast, expansive shots of New York, as well as like in NYPD Blue, when we would build homeless shelters and dress the streets with garbage and storefronts, things that they really wanted to focus on specifically and could tell a trained viewer like they have, and we still have to these days, can tell if it's real or, you know, a backlot dressed. So we would do that unit every single year for many years. And this small, tight group of us in New York would plan our year so we could be off any other job we were on and able to play with them every time they came to New York because it was a joy ride. Let me tell you, it was great. (laughs) Well, so because they're there for such a short period of time and, and because all of you guys have your own jobs that are ongoing, how do you get hired for a second unit like that? And what's different about that when it's like this compressed time frame, you have to get all of this stuff done. And, and I remember in the interview him talking about having to dress it in such a different way, like four different, you know, sections on the same street and that kind of thing. Everything must feel very different. I would say 
that from all of the second units or New York units that I've been on, you tend to see a lot of experience. You tend to see department heads who are very familiar with shooting on the streets of New York, running huge, enormous crews, and being able to flip on a dime and do whatever is required. It is not work for the faint of heart. It's very technical work. It's technical camera work, a lot of it. And again, we're going into these locations that are not really open for usual filming, but a lot of planning goes into what's needed. Sometimes, honestly, they're bigger than doing an entire show because it tends to be things that, although they change a lot while we're progressing, starting in the prep and location scouting, and and it tends to evolve a lot, it's something that's so pivotal to the project that it's not like being on a regular show where you lose a location and you move on or something else changes or the script changes and, you know, we don't necessarily need that scene. These are like the pivotal story point scenes and they have to happen the way they're scripted. I think it would blow people's minds to realize how many shows that look based in New York would only have like a week's worth of shooting in actual New York. So it is so impactful and important what you guys are doing. And I imagine all of these all these scenes are then sort of sprinkled throughout the season, basically. Yeah, on on a series, that's how it works. On the films, it is also cut throughout the film. It's also a cost issue. You know, very often it's cheaper to shoot somewhere else and come to New York just to grab these big explosive scenes or, you know, a a lot of effects take place on the streets of New York and things that we have to consider in the set decorating department here on the East Coast and the way that we work. Period work for National Treasury we turned a couple of streets downtown into turn of the century with hay all over the streets and horse and carriages. And, you know, all those things fall under the set decorator's job. I find myself doing these massive New York units uh, throughout my career, and they're less about the perfect interior, and they're more about the big, expansive exterior. So it's a lot of labor. And and again, I kind of attribute it to being an air traffic controller. It's a lot of overseeing and planning. And seeing moving parts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing that works so well for me on New York units is, although they have a long prep period, sometimes shows come back to New York for literally actor availability. You know, maybe an actor lives here and they have a pickup shot that they want to do. My most recent New York unit was on an upcoming movie called The Adam Project, which will be out March 11th on Netflix. So for that project, we created one of the interior sets that was shot in Canada back here in New York. It started off being a match to that set, but then in the end, in fact, they decided to reshoot everything within that one set. But again, part of the challenge sometimes in doing New York units is that I do have to recreate something that was done and shot elsewhere. So it's up to me to do my searching and deep diving into finding all those similar set pieces. Uh, It's kind of rare that an entire set gets shipped to New York, but sometimes that's the case as well. Like on uh, the most recent Home Alone, which we reestablished one set so they could shoot here for an actor's shooting schedule. And that was a matter of overseeing and adding things that we would need to get here, like 
Christmas trees and Christmas lights and some things that didn't end up making it here well in in shipping. Sometimes there's broken lamps or a pillow here missing. For that job, you know, I spent a couple of solid days looking for the perfect throw that was exactly where the actor was going to stand on the chair next to him. You know, of course, in the end, you never saw it, but, you know, <laughs> it had to so be there. Is your job, right? And that is my job, and I found it, and it arrived in time, and, you know, it. those are the little triumphs of recreating and putting together a set that's been shot before. So it's kind of like putting a puzzle piece together, or, you know, a great big puzzle, and also it's interesting because... It's a way that I get to work with a lot of different people, both, you know, in terms of production designers and directors and and certainly actors. So it's been a big part of my set decorating history. And I I really enjoy New York units of, of course, nothing compares with NYPD Blue. (laughs) Well, the chemistry between you and Richard Hankins is undeniable. I love y'all's rapport. You guys are adorable together. You're so giggly. (laughs) Love that. Uh, For our listeners, The Adam Project will be coming out on March 11th, 2022 on Netflix. It's from director Sean Levy and producer and star Ryan Reynolds. The Adam Project tells the story of time-traveling pilot who teams up with his younger self and his late father to come to terms with his past while saving the future. The Adam Project stars Ryan Reynolds, Mark Ruffalo, Jennifer Garner, Walker Scoble, Catherine Keener, and Zoe Saldana. And we'll be released globally all over the place, you guys. You can find it. I know we have listeners over in Kenya. I know we have listeners in Hungary everywhere. I'm so excited. Yes, to all our international <laughs> listeners. Yes, you guys. Keep really joining us. So come and take a look at Beth's most recent project, The Adam Project, on March 11th on Netflix. And with that, let's move on over to our interview with Richard Hankins. You guys enjoy. Joining us today is a true legend of the television business, Richard Hankins. Among other notable achievements, Richard has won two Daytime Emmy Awards for his work on Guiding Light and was a two-time nominee for his work as production designer on NYPD Blue. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Caroline. It's nice nice to be here. Super happy to have you. Hi, Richard. So happy that you're joining us. (laughs) After all our years of working together on NYPD Blue, we would be putting together our New York units of NYPD Blue every summer for all the years that the show aired. But you were year-round creating the process of New York City in Los Angeles. So we want to start with that. Tell us a little bit about that process. (laughs) Trying to make Los Angeles look like New York, unless you're on the back lot of one of the studios, it was always difficult, but it was really hard because, number one, uh, there's no telephone poles, so that immediately rules out about 90% of Los Angeles in New York. There's no telephone poles since the blizzard of 1890-something or other. And the palm trees in the Santa Monica Mountains kind of ruins all that uh, and uh, traffic and stuff. So, yeah, it would, we would find about – there are about four or five – street areas that we would shoot in Los Angeles every time and try and redress them and redo them. But it was so much to do to make it look like New York. And, you know, we had to fool as many people in New York as we possibly could. So I would do a sketch on 11 by 18 piece of Xerox paper of the locations we would shoot. And I would draw it all in the storefronts and uh, the streets and all the information on it with paint colors and all that to give out because handing out four pages of notes was just too much work and it was easier just to draw it up and that way people could see exactly what was going where and what was going to be used and the producers and the directors could see where the area was to shoot and etc. So that was the part I enjoyed the most and just to give you an idea of how much stuff had to be in those drawings was um, I've got a list here so hang in there. We had to paint out the red curbs had to paint all the traffic lights because they're a different color than they are in in, uh, New York. We had to add street signs for New York streets. 
we had two trucks, a large truck and a small truck that we would graffitiize and use that for like when one of our guys would be walking across the street and the camera wanted to pan with him and you could see the Santa Monica Mountains or Palms trees in the background or something. We would have that truck with graffiti on it, drive right across the street behind them and travel with them so you never saw down the street you saw the truck in the background and then we the truck would go out of frame and we'd have painters and they would quickly repaint the side of the truck with a roller and the truck would turn around and we had different uh, signage on the other side of the truck and that would drive back across the other way and we would do that back and forth a couple of times so it looked like we had like 10 trucks we only had two we had cabs we had police vehicles an mta bus that we used for blocking Storefronts had to be painted and um, covered with uh, signage, scissor gates, roll downs. So we had alternate side of the street parking signs, which everybody in New York knows what that's like in the morning, getting up and running out to your car and moving it to the other side of the street. And steam with manholes that we would run the steam. So that would help block what was going on in the background. Plus it gave atmosphere. Board ups, graffiti, handbills, always had water in the curbs and some trash. All the trash cans, even put broken umbrellas inside the, the trash cans. Construction barricades, a subway entrance we had. Homeless sites, traffic tickets, even on cars, even put the, the King air fresheners for cabs on the, <laughs> on the dashboard. As if you know New York, you know what those are like. And fire hydrants. And then on the back lot or even on the street, we would add trees and tree guards. All that plus paint colors would all be on one sketch for like one little section. And we do probably, I probably do about maybe about four sketches of actual location we would shoot in downtown LA. And then I would do the same thing for all the stuff we would do on our little back lot at Fox, or if we were shooting some episodes at um, uh, one of the other studios back lots, do sketches for that. So it'd be about maybe about six to eight sketches for every episode that I'd have to draw up. And then of course we had all the interior sets that we had to do, but yeah, so it was, I mean, it was a lot of work, but it was, um, it was a lot of fun. You know, Caroline, I don't think that necessarily our listeners really understand all of the categories, uh, especially in New York. We've talked about this a little bit, that the art department and set decoration department cover. And, you know, these things that you don't necessarily put under the category of straight decor, garbage cans and broken umbrellas and all these layers that create the look, they're all part of the art department and set decoration department and all part of our responsibility. I don't mean to jump in here, but but the set decorators in New York really, really work their butts off. They are responsible for so much more than the set decorators in Los Angeles. And I'm not taking away from either one which one's better, but uh, there's more responsibility. I mean, if we, if we blow out a window on location in New York, that breakaway glass has to be set in there originally by the set decorators and then replaced for the next take and the next take and the next take. So they're doing that. All the hardware on an interior set which can be very massive. I mean, it drives you nuts. I've done hardware for sets before, and it's something that drives me crazy. But all the hinges, all the doorknobs, all the locks, all the all the uh, uh, intercoms, switch plates, all the electrical plates. outlets. Oh yeah, all, all the all the fixtures, all that stuff is is done by the set decorators in in New York and the set decorators. And it just it just blows my mind how much more they have to do than they do in Los Angeles. And the reason for that is it's just a, a different system here. You know, with the studio system in Los Angeles, they have the ability to send things out to the drapery department or they have a department that lays the board that protects locations. Here, the concept in the union is is that uh, as, as a member of the prop department, we should be able to do anything, any part of what we're responsible for, you know, for the creating the set decoration and the look of the show. So we do have a lot more categories that we're responsible for. So we decided to put together this document for producers and production managers coming to New York because they would come with such a limited budget for set decoration and manpower. Hour, and then they were always shocked to know what fell into our category, you know, everything from hardware to tiles to greens to uh, everything, uh, pretty much everything. 
Tell us a little bit about the concept that NYPD Blue would come to New York every summer. And of course, we all laughed here because every time you decided to show up in New York, it instantaneously became 103 degrees every day you were here. But um, every time, I mean, it was like classic, you know, the minute the whole NYPD Blue team landed from LA, there was a heat wave in New York. But year Year after year, as Richard knows well, doing this week of shooting on NYPD Blue was literally like the most coveted job in New York. And people would replace themselves on other shows and say, you know, I have a standing commitment to my week of shooting for NYPD Blue. I don't know how I managed to get it in my schedule. But I did every year, and it was one of the best jobs consistently. We all look forward to you guys showing up here. We all look forward to coming to New York to shoot. Um, it was actually, it was twice a year for, I think, the first 10 years. Right. We would come right before daylight savings time changed in October, so we could get more time shooting in daylight hours. But, um, yeah, we would come, I think it was, what, like the... Uh, End of July, uh, first August, the last week August. of July, and the first week of August. We always mixed it that way, and yeah, it would always be like the record-setting time of the year for heat. It was just miserable, but we loved coming to New York because, for me as a designer, it was like a vacation because I didn't have to design. New York. It was there for me. <laughs> I could kind of just do the small stuff that was needed, um, you know, confer with Beth and say, well, we need this for set dressing and signage we needed to make up and vinyl and stuff like that. But pretty much it was like a vacation time. And I just had the greatest time, especially working with Beth. We would just laugh ourselves silly for a whole week of shooting. Um, it was really funny because we would... Um, uh, you know, they had all the director's chairs for the cast and the directors and the producers. And then the set dressers would be just standing around for hours on end while we shot over and over and over again, someplace like in the park or something. I finally said, you know what, enough. When you order <laughs> set dressing, I want you to get director's chair for the whole set dressing department. And, and Unheard sure of. Unheard <laughs> of. In the same colors as the rest of the show. So there would be the set dressers on the, on the curb on the side of the street. Six, you know, five chairs set up there with all sitting on the chairs, just sitting there drinking latte and having a good time and <laughs> relaxing. I figure, you know, they should enjoy it too, you know. It was always uh, uh, just fun. I would come a week beforehand. Um, just well, I would come. A, I would come and scout with the producers for like three days, about two weeks prior to shooting, and then uh, I would come back into town like two or three days prior to shooting to get things together with Beth and and uh, everything else. But mainly, I did it so I could come and, and relax and enjoy New York City <laughs> for three days on their dime. Um, we just laughed. We did so much fun stuff. Uh, th- there's one that was really fun. The instant that was, we had to add trash to the streets of New York, which I thought. It was yeah, just there like... were years when New York was way too clean for NYPD Blue. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the village uh, where we always shot in the East Lower East Village was always like just a mess, and it got better and better. And by the time we finished shooting there, this end of the series, it was like kind of the place to live. But you know, before I think. Avenue A was be aware. Avenue B was something I can't. Avenue C was caution, and Avenue D was death. I mean, it was just <laughs> that type of thing. But we would have just the greatest time, just finding stuff in New York and shooting it. It was just I don't know. It was just like it was like vacation time. It was so much fun. I mean, don't make it sound like it was no work at all. Although, oh, no, no, it was <laughs> the, the the one the one thing I remember that was really kind of fun and crazy was we were shooting on. Uh, I think it was Canal Street or maybe Houston. I think it was Houston. And there was this whole block we were shooting. And we had spent the whole morning putting out – Beth had gotten trash cans. And then she had her guys spend like two hours stuffing plastic trash bags and boxes and stuff so we'd have trash to put on the street. Yeah, we would start collecting trash before they showed up 
in those days, people would on cruise were smoking cigarettes and I was collecting buckets of butts. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, for the whole week before they came, I was like, don't throw anything out. Oh, you know, yeah. every, I was collecting what we call clean garbage and everyone was laughing at us. But, you know, we, we basically carried around a truck of garbage and street dressing. So go, go on, tell this yeah, well, m- ridiculous most, most story. Sh- mo- most shows would carry a phone booth on their truck. Because there was always that one phone call that had to be somewhere with a phone booth, and they would just carry it, you know, on the truck. There'd be a phone booth just in case you needed it. And we always had trash. And, and so Best Crew had spent all this time getting all these old trash cans that were all dented and, and had this number spray painted on the outside of them and for the addresses and, and fill them all up with trash bags and trash cans and pile it up all along the street. And we rehearsed the scene, and then everybody went broke for lunch. And uh, we came back from lunch, and all the trash was gone, and all the trash cans had been emptied. And <laughs> all that was there was like these trash cans that were empty lying around on the street on the, on the curbs and everything else. And it turned out – we talked uh, – uh, the local motion picture uh, police um, squad was there, and they said that the sanitation department had come by, and they started to <laughs> – they started to unlo- you know dump all the stuff in their trucks. And the cops said, no, you can't do that. That's part of the set. And um, you're going to bleep this. But the guy said, <laughs> you, we don't work for the police department. We're sanitation. And they cleaned everything up and off they went. So literally, <laughs> Beth and her crew had to go out and buy tons of newspapers and plastic trash bags and all this stuff and madly make all this trash and garbage reappear on the street in, in record time, by the way. We in didn't record lose time. I never, we never ran faster for junk ever <laughs> what yeah. a compliment though that like it looks so much like trash <laughs> oh i know it's just i mean method uh, method and, set dressing yes and all I, all I can say is that the sanitation guys must have really wondered why everything was so light and didn't smell at <laughs> and all clean right yeah. <laughs> super and clean. clean you guys have such an ease about the two of you together i i have to ask on behalf of the listeners tell us a little bit about when you guys first started working together because it's not always so easy at first. Oh, it was like this from the start. You guys have like instant connection, I can tell. So tell us a little bit about those early days. I was a little nervous because I I hadn't met Beth before, even though I lived in New York for 12 years. I hadn't met Beth and didn't really know her at all. I was just Paul Eads, who was the uh, who originally designed the, the show for the first year, and then I took over, uh, recommended Beth, uh, and I was like, she's used to doing it great. But I had no idea what I was in for. And we clicked right away. I mean, I think I probably said one sentence or two sentences, and she started to laugh, and I went, oh, okay, this is good. (laughs) We just giggled all the time and just had just so much fun. I mean, doing homeless shelters, just so much fun. And the great thing about working with Beth is, and this is something that I really require from a decorator and it's also what i learned from designing theater and in theater uh your characters and your actors would do bios of themselves or or of their characters and everything you did on the set i required that it have a, a story behind it so if you pick up a tchotchka that's on a shelf you can tell where that piece came from relating to the character and where they found it and what was happening in their life and so every single thing on the set has a story to tell. And I require, I, well, I don't require, but I, I want the decorator, if I pick up something, they could tell me exactly where that came from and what the story is behind it. Because that also helps when, you tell, when, you, when you're working with the actor. You can say, well, you, know, this, you got this when you're in college. And I find that the actors feel a little bit more comfortable in the set because then they feel like the set is kind of wrapped around their character and they can, you know, that they feel more in character being there. Kind of like you give them period underwear because they're doing a, a period show. They feel right, like you're they're helping the them tell their story. Exactly. And they feel comfortable there. Beth was uh, always really good at that. I mean, just, you know, there's a story for everything. Oh, I could tell the whole story of the woman living in the homeless shelter (laughs) that we built underneath the subway tracks. No, we we really... um, One of the many we built. (laughs) We we really challenged ourselves to bring a reality to the streets. And I have to say, as a native Manhattanite, we shot in a lot of different neighborhoods. And, you know, we really tried to represent New York City exactly the way it was. 
in in all of those years, even when we had to dirty it up because the mayor, you know, cleaned it up too much. But <laughs> we we did we did really think about the police and and the shows stories that were being told you know we had to do a couple of gruesome scenes some uh, findings of dead people and stuff but you know it's still it still falls under the um, art department the production designer and set decorator to give the show a look and it and it it was known for its gritty realistic look one scene I remember quite fondly was um, we were doing something in, I think it was Tompkins Square Park or Madison mm-hmm. Park or something, mm-hmm. a playground. And suddenly David Milch, brilliant, brilliant writer and creator of the show, had written this scene with a, a merry-go-round, uh, a kid's merry-go-round, the little spin-around thing. And there wasn't one there. You know, it was up to uh, Beth to find one. And she finally found one. I think it with that Hasidic guy in Brooklyn, I think it I was. Did. Yeah. I did. I <laughs> did. <laughs> it was, I mean, you know, to find something like that available to rent is just like, you know, that's, I mean, where do you start? But Beth has all the contacts of the city. If you want to find anything in New York City, I mean, even, even a, I wanted a doorman umbrella because I love doorman umbrellas. I live there. And Beth found me a doorman umbrella, which I still have to this day that the guy went out of business, but a doorman umbrella had more spokes in it than regular umbrellas, which is why they never exploded in the wind. But Beth knew where to find that. I mean, it's just, of it's just course a, she did. Oh, it's just amazing. I mean, she knows she knows where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> we expect her to help when there's bodies to be buried. So, oh yeah, but yeah, it, it was always the hottest time of the year there. And then also in uh, October, we go, we come, and it would be like really warm and really hot. And then one day it would just right. hit. It would just bottom out, and it would be like down in the 30s. And I remember I was uh, uh, there, and it was it was like about the 40s, I guess it was, this one day. Uh, we were on the Williamsburg Bridge shooting. When I used to live in New York, um, I had this Eddie Bauer Arctic parka with the coyote fur on on the, around the the, uh, the hood and everything, and I just thrown that in my kit bag before I left LA. You never know, and so um, it was like forty degrees, and I had that on, and all these guys, the New York crew is like they're all running around t shirts, going, "Hey, you guys, yeah, t shirts, shorts." But yeah, you guys in LA's are a bunch of wussies. Well, well, well. The next day it was like thirty degrees, and I'm sitting there in the director's chair watching them shoot in my nice warm parka with my hood and toasty and they're all just freezing their butts <laughs> off so they weren't kidding me anymore but you know i guess it's about the new york cruise and i really need to say this there's a lot of shows that are terrified to shoot in new york because of cost and trying to figure out moving the company around and all the trucks and parking and crowd control and all that stuff but the one thing about new york cruise are they are exceptional. They are so good. They're so used to working in rain, snow, the lousiest weather. We were shooting on the top of a rooftop in Brooklyn, right next to the Brooklyn Bridge we had for Simone's rooftop. Uh, Where we created a pigeon coop. Well, we created pigeons. the whole rooftop. <laughs> yes. It was a flat roof with nothing there. So I rented um, a couple of pieces from uh, Stiegelbauer Associates. Uh, of skylights and other things and beth found more things like the uh the fan housings on the top the air fans and stuff and then we had a whole pigeon coop designed and built and then lifted up by a crane because it was just a stairway going to five floors up so we had a crane that was hauling all this stuff up the roof so there we up on this roof and we created this whole rooftop and the new york crew guys the grips and the electrics and everything they are like running around on the outside edge literally on the outside edge of this building five stories up with lights and cables and all the producers in our show were freaking out they're going oh my god they're gonna fall they're gonna hurt and i'm just sitting there going no these guys do this all the time <laughs> you know <laughs> it was just we, we risk our lives every day <laughs> uh, new yorkers <laughs> it's true we're we're a hearty bunch and you know the the other thing that this whole group brought with them from la was not only a sense of humor but never in my life have i been with more people who are incredible practical jokers that it's it's a a one-upmanship 
that you just, I mean, you can't even enter into it. You know, they work together every day in LA, but they come here with everything from masks to, uh, I, I don't know what, it, like crazy stuff. They, uh, you know, start stories that are, and rumors and, you know, it, it just so quickly, like the whole crew is ingratiated and, you know, in on the joke. The troops were led by our uh, executive producer, showrunner, and extraordinary director, uh, Mark Tinker. Incredible. And, and everything just rolled off his back. I mean, it, it, the thing about working with Mark is that if you run into a um, roadblock, you just change direction, do something new, and go the opposite direction. And it's it's no big deal. He, he's not one of these people who says, I have to have it. Right. Of course. He's so nimble and, and you know, just everything pivots. Like, if the location manager would come back and say, even though we planned this whole thing for this time and this day that we can't have it and we got to shift. The first thing usually someone does is, you know, lose their mind over this stuff. But, you know, he sets this tone that whatever, we'll deal with it. Well, one of the things that was really a good time was we had one of our, uh, towards the end was an executive producer, but he started out as just a, um, a guy. Tech advisor. Tech advisor, yeah. And he was, he's an he was uh, at the time still working as a detective from Queens with the uh, police department. But all the stuff that uh, took place, all the crimes that took place on um, NY were all out of his, his files. And so he, when he, he retired from the police department the year after um, the first year and he moved to LA and became uh, a producer on the show, but a big bull of a guy, a uh, Bill Clark, but the sweetest guy in the world and um, was just, I mean, he was there for anybody. I mean, he, he was an honest, good guy. I mean, he was just a charm to work with. But he was also easy to trick. Um, <laughs> two things that really stand out for me was, one, we were shooting in this uh, cemetery in Brooklyn. We all stayed at the, ho- at the uh, uh, Regency Hotel together. We had some flowers on a grave and did this whole thing. But across the street from this uh, cemetery was this market that sold all the flowers that you would put on the graves. I've never seen so many garish colors that they could make a carnation or a rose look. I mean, they had neon roses. And just, I know I mean, Beth most, loves that. Oh, just a, and they had all the different types of things, like the horseshoe and the cross and all these things made from flowers. And so I told Beth, I said, please go over there and buy a couple hundred dollars worth of floral arrangements and Take him to the hotel and get the concierge who we knew and, and really liked us and stuff to unlock Bill's hotel room and fill it with all the flowers and displays. And so he did. And and I, I still remember, you know, Bill Clark, and, and he always used the F word like every other word. He was such a true New Yorker, at least the old school. And yeah. um, he, motherfucker, what the hell? I walk into my room and it's filled with flowers. Hankins. He knew exactly it was me. And we would just laugh to death about it. And then there was other thing that he used to do was um, – he, we were on shooting on location about the third year, and he would suddenly stop, and he would bend over and pick up a penny. And we were like, you know, Tinker started noticing him doing this. And he'd go, Bill, what are you doing? Man, you never turned down free money. I, I had a jaw, this big old water jaw in my, in my uh, apartment, and I just would fill it with pennies I would find while walking the beat. And Tinker goes, but Bill... You're making six figures a year now. You don't need to find the pennies. Nope, always pick up the pennies. So I started like going through my pockets and finding loose pennies. And I would just kind of casually drop one on the on the sidewalk one place and just wait for him to walk by and pick it up. I mean, he could spot a penny anywhere about a block away. Okay, this started with one penny. Yeah. And then over the years... At least a hundred times a week of shooting. Oh yeah, pennies yeah. were flying. I, and- I would <laughs> I, I would give five dollars to the to the, the someone and say, hey, go down to the store there and get get five dollars worth of pennies. And they come back with these rolls of pennies, and I would just start like putting them all around. You know, and he would always find them. But then it got to the point where it was so insane. I mean, there was one point I think I actually crazy glued one to the sidewalk. Um, <laughs> And damn if he didn't spend about 15 minutes to get that damn thing up and get that penny. But, you know, but 
the funniest part was I started dropping them in the aisle on the airplane. You are terrible. (laughs) These guys are relentless. They are relentless. And and I have to say, in, in, in all seriousness, Remember this world in the good old days, you know, before yeah. HR, before, <laughs> but before correct behavior, before all of it, before we were so monitored and our hands were tied, you know, we worked in a business that just happened, you know, and just was so collaborative and so not run based on executives and corporations. So, you know, you gotta you gotta picture all of these stories during the the time that it happened. It was also it was also it was also a period that you could kid people and and everybody knew you were kidding. Everything was open for being kid about and it was never done nothing was ever done to be mean or to belittle anybody it was just good fun and and everybody got hit with with practical jokes not just the actors and the crew people but also the producers the director i mean we kidded everybody there, uh, there was a great scene we had with john Turturro's younger brother uh nicky who was one of the cops on the show detectives and he was just terrified of rats. And we were on the soundstage in in, in L.A., and we got a, a dummy rat. And Tinker would, like, Mark Tinker, our executive producer, director, and everything, would, like, Nikki would be going down a long hallway on the soundstage, you know, looking for the culprit with a gun and stuff. And Tinker would just toss that rat over the wall and right in front of him. And Nikki would scream, turn around and run down this long hallway and out the door. I mean, he could go to any doorway. There's like 10 doorways in the hall and you open the door and you're, you're out of the set. But he would turn around and run the whole way back. And we kept doing that. And he, we would hide the rat in his trailer. In the dressing room, in the we squad room. We had our fair room. share of rubber rats. Don't get it, get me wrong. It wasn't like we were, we were kidding around all the time. We weren't just kidding all the time. But there was so much pressure to get this show done every seven days. And we had like literally sometimes as much as 15 sets and locations to do every, every seven days. Towards the last year, we were getting scripts literally the day before or scenes the day before the day of shooting. So we were like, uh, you know, we were under extreme pressure to get the show done, but it was a way of kind of relaxing and having fun and keeping everybody on an even keel that, that we managed to keep, you know, keep the humor going. It was a lot of work. It was, it, it was so layered and so complicated, both of course for Richard and the team in, in Los Angeles, but even in New York, I mean, the irony, right, of dirtying up the street, of thinking that you would just find what you were looking for as a location. But in fact, oh, you know, there are all, I mean, we had to add, but we also had to take into account these other issues. You know, could we book a specific store front or did we need something that was on the same block together? You know, so many times we had to create something. So these are all factors that drive a a script, a schedule, a show, you know, as to what's going to shoot where. And then, of course, after that schedule is done and the script is broken down, then the art department and setback department know what falls into their lap. It's a lot of work that isn't really comprehended by the viewer, but if it was wrong or if it was missing, people would notice. It was a finely tuned dance for our production manager to figure out the schedule so that we would not have to move the company uh, because that just, you, you, you lose a half a day moving trucks and equipment and everything. So we'd have to try and piece together what scenes we could shoot in one area and what can we turn this into? And can we find a store for this? And, you know, um, it was a, a constant piece of choreography that we would do. That was, it was just amazing that it got done at all. To tell you the truth. Uh, it was really something that I, um, I always admired our, our uh, UPM, Bob Doherty, for being able to piece together what we had to shoot, where we had to shoot it. And then Beth would make someplace look perfect. I mean, like we had to do a video store, this one spot, and we gave it the name, the Village Video Store. 
and um, <laughs> and and just filled it with all these uh, DVD, oh, not DVD, it was uh, videotapes at the right. time. VHS. Yeah, VHS, yes. You know, it's like, what are they? Oh, um, <laughs> But we had to fill that with that. It was just, it was just amazing, and, and I think that was also we didn't have the breakaway window on that. We had to blow out, and we had to re- reset it. And that was the first time I knew that the decorator in New York was responsible for breakaway windows. I was just amazed. As a designer in New York with 829, it's just one union, and you have to be able to just as the decorators and the uh, IATSE crew members have to be able to do all kinds of different things. I think at one point, if you join IATSE, you had to be able to set up a camera. Didn't matter if you were going to be a decorator or a greens person or what. Well, you got to plumb a sink. That's right. And... You had to plumb a sink. <laughs> and I think also had to set up a camera, I think, at one point. They, they had that a long time ago. But designers in New York, uh, we had to be able to draft and build models and paint and do sketches and do uh, uh, storyboards and all that stuff. And in L.A., there's a union for every single, uh, every single one of those jobs. And as a designer, I'm not supposed to draw. I'm not supposed to draft. But that's the whole reason I enjoyed doing what I did because I love to draft. I love to draw. I'm a pencil guy. Which is so unbelievably rare. I cannot tell you how, you know, since, I mean, again, I'm dating myself, but no one used computer drafting when I first started. You know, every decent designer would be able to just draw their what was on their mind, whether it was on a napkin or a piece of paper. And what Richard provided us with, I mean, they're, they're literal works of art. Yeah, I probably got about 800 sketches from NY. They're just incredible. And, you know, it sounds like dirty work and kind of strange stuff for a set decorator, but I learned so much from the experience about pivoting and best way to advance the company. You know, they would be shooting in one location that we would dress early in the morning and then be moving a little bit to another and really working my crew. And we had it all down to a a well-oiled machine and knowing that they were coming back every year and that this was something that every department was committed to being able to do it over and over it just was like a really pivotal part when I look back on all my different jobs Uh, you know I'm so fond of that time and to this day, I go to different places, you know, mostly for work, but in the city and, and think, oh, we, we shot there on NY. We, you know, we, we turned that store into something else. And it's just, for me, a part of it is uh, was working with Richard and the whole team and also just like the love story to New York. People think doing that New York look is easy and it's really very complicated and there's a lot, a lot of detail that you're not aware of. If you look at an interior of a police precinct, just the boxes and boxes and stacks of paper and stuff, it's just, it's immense. And then the the grime, so all the walls have to have this uh, patina on them and it's just, um, and things, some things don't make any sense at all and you have to kind of think that way. Yeah, the kookiness of it all, you know? Yeah, it's the fun. It's really the fun things about, you know, I mean, like we had one set we had that, oh, God, um, David Milch is so talented and funny. And he wrote this scene where um, this woman answers the door. And our guys are outside. And they look in the first time. And he just wrote the scene that this woman collects all kinds of junk. And that was it. You know, that's that's all he had to write. So... I sat there and I and we came up with this idea and this is my decorator in, in LA. We I said, you know, I want to cover everything in the whole place with aluminum foil. And we covered every single piece in there with aluminum foil. We put lotto ch- uh, receipts all over the back of the door and just had all this stuff in there. And so this woman opens the door and um she's stark naked. And there's a pause, and Simone and Sipwitz are standing there, and Sipwitz says, go put something on. So she closes the door, and then she comes back, and she opens the door up, and she's dumped baby powder on her head. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you read that, and you go, oh, okay, everything's open to what I want to do inside that apartment. And it has to kind of, you have to be able to 
whatever you do in the apartment has to kind of back this woman up and that kind of craziness and kookiness. And we just had the greatest fun just doing all kinds of weird stuff in that place. And we had that with all kinds of things. We had to do, um, hmm, I'm trying to think now. Uh, oh, help me out. Help me out here. Voodoo? Yes, voodoo. Yes. We had to do like voodoo uh, uh, altars and stuff like that inside of brownstones. And we just had the greatest time creating all the stuff that was in a voodoo altar. And it was always creative. But everything we did, you had to justify it. And if you had a director goes, well, I'm not buying that, then you could tell the, well, you know, here's what we did, the research we did on it. And they go, oh, okay, that's fine. Well, that's, a, that's another thing. I mean, Richard's ability and his proficiency to do the research on all of this, it would drive everything. I mean, it, it, the things that he came up with for the interiors and the exteriors, as far out as they might have been, there was always a level of research done. And he used all the time that we were together to constantly be photographing and taking pictures in New York to take back to LA. And I'm honored to have my name as one of the sides of one of his design trucks, Kushnick moving van. Oh, oh I yes. love that. Yep. <laughs> um, Richard, when you look back, do you think that, uh, I know you were on it the longest, but do you think that NYPD Blue was your job of your career that stands out the most? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really proud of it. Rightfully so. First of all, it was a great working environment. And everybody loved each other and loved working with each other. And so that made life easier. There was no, you know, if if there was anybody that was a stick in the mud, uh, the next season they weren't there. Everybody had a lot of fun and, and enjoyed working with each other. And every department respected other departments and a lot of respect. But yeah, it was probably, I mean, it was almost 12 years worth of work. And, you know, I, I, a lot of friends I have that are designers, you know, they've got this huge resume of what they've done because they would stay for one year at the mm -hmm. most on a show. And I always stayed there because I was given the total freedom to design to the point where literally um, uh, uh, a director like Tinker would say, well, where do you think the camera should go? It was that type of feeling that you had the total freedom. Collaboration. No yeah. yeah, there wasn't any questioning what you did. They, you were totally trusted to do it. And it was always interesting for me. Every time I went to New York, I would, you know, having lived in New York, I hardly had any books on New York. But moving to L.A. to do the show, I started collecting books on the history of New York and graffiti and trains and just everything. I ended up with probably about 15 to 20 feet of books on New York. And then I would take like 15 rolls of film every time I went to New York and I would put those into three ring binders. And I had it probably about Oh, 13, if not more, three-inch uh, binders with four pictures per page that had, like, one book would be nothing but trash and graffiti. Another one would be nothing but storefronts. Another, another one would be just, just fire escapes and brownstones. And, and, and I noticed towards the end, I was looking through the books on, on uh, storefronts, and I realized for 10 years I had been taking some of the pictures of the same buildings but hadn't realized it. And they had changed businesses like five times. <laughs> and, or, I've, or there'd be a picture of like the Mars bar down in the Lower East Village that would constantly get repainted and re-graffitiized and stuff. And I had, I had a whole visual reference of the Lower East Side for 10 years. But I would use those books to flip through them and find something, an interesting look, say, okay, let's do this for a fire escape or for a homeless, homeless site. I mean, I had tons of pictures of a homeless site and tons of pictures of just trash. Yeah, you know what? And that drove our creation. I mean, it sounds maybe so absurd to people, but literally when you're standing on the street corner at 6 a.m. with a truckload of trash working out of a truck on the, on the street, having that reference helped me and my entire team give the show the look, the consistent look. And I don't know, we like triumphed every time. It, it just all, <laughs> I mean, like, uh, uh, yeah, like, look at my garbage, you know? Oh, I know. We, I love we, it. But, you know, we talk about on the show that audiences scrutinize everything now. Now we can pause, we yeah, can rewind. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, and, you, and so for you guys to get so, such authenticity, you know, it matters. I mean, did you guys get any feedback ever where someone was like, hey, what about this? That doesn't seem right. Like, no, were people ever never. like that with you guys? No, I, we had some of the detectives would say, 
oh yeah, I know that place. I love that place. And it's like, you know, and it's like, no, we built that on stage. <laughs> you know, they, oh, that's awesome. They're like, I ate there. And they're like, no, you didn't. <laughs> or, or we would we would take a storefront on the back lot of Fox, which is like this little T-Bones intersection left from Hello Dolly that we would constantly redo storefronts. In fact, on my website, I, I have um, uh, same building, different look. Uh, I think probably I have like 20 photographs of the exact same brownstone and storefront that redressed and redone and repainted and re-signaged. And same spot, different look. But we'd do like the exterior of maybe um, an actual Lower East Side building in New York storefront. And we do it on the back lot. And um, we would have somebody say, oh, yeah, I love that. That bakery is the best place. I love going there. And I would go, oh, that's good. But we did that on the back lot, you know. <laughs> there was an article in the New York Times. They were talking about the 30-mile zone for location shooting a lot, that you can't beat New York for a look. And any show, you know, show shot in New York, it's it's a part of the character. And, and they were listing all these shows that shoot New York for New York, you know, Law and & Order and shows like that. And they listed NYPD Blue. And I ran off a, a quick letter to the uh, editor of the New York Times <laughs> Sunday. And I said, well, thank you very much. I, you know, it's, it's a great honor for you to mention us and everything. But we actually, we only shoot about 10 days worth of shooting in New York for a couple of the episodes. And the rest of it's all shot in Los Angeles on the back lot in the city. And it got printed Oh, what a compliment that that they they completely confused the situation. (laughs) I know. So it was a great compliment to our our work and also uh, the amount of detail that goes into everything that that I do. And I know Beth, I'm I'm a huge fan of Beth, and her um, career is just so amazing. And the work she's done on the different types of films and stuff are just um, amazing. I'm going to say this because Beth was working on a on a film in New York with uh, Robert De Niro, and I happened to go drive up to the uh, Santa Monica Mountains in Los Angeles, and I was driving around, and there was these giant pine trees there, and usually the only time you see those is when they're on fire, but had the world's biggest pine cones. I mean, the size of footballs. They're like steroids on steroids. (laughs) They're like footballs. If they fall on your head, it's like a coconut. You know, you'd be like Keith Richards knocked out. And um, I sent a picture of that to Beth, and and I sent her like a whole box full of them. And she ended up putting them in, a, I think, a wooden bowl. I put them in a a really oversized wooden, like carved wooden bowl on the dining table in the Robert De Niro movie, Hide and Seek, which was a a set that we built on stage, but it was a, like a really beautiful country house. (laughs) Love it. Look at the collaboration, you two. (laughs) Apparently, if I remember right, he he really liked the pine cones. (laughs) Yeah, they were a hit. (laughs) They were authentic. They were a hit. (laughs) <laughs> and then uh, and then I also, um, when I worked at CBS in New York at, at Broadcast Center on 57th Street, one day they were throwing out all this stuff in these dumpsters. And I kind of, you know, I always like to look in dumpsters. You never know what you're going to find. And I found all these negatives and prints of all these. They had a whole, from the early days of television, CBS had a whole library of photographs of New York City and old photographs and stuff so they could use them to make prints for backdrops and use them on the on the old days of black and white. And so I grabbed a whole bunch of these things and it turned out I had all these great old pictures of New York City and they were all, I think, three by five or, or four by four, a large format. And so I had a bunch of them printed up and I sent them off to Beth so she could use them on a set. In New York City. <laughs> so, so a roundabout way, I got them in New York. I moved to Los Angeles. I got them printed up, and I sent them back to New York to use on a set in New York. I, you know. That's so we got, to, we got to collaborate on, on a lot of things, even above and beyond to NY. Collaborate and commiserate. We, we yes, used to that's right. kvetch with each other all the time. <laughs> but she always, you know, you always always got off the phone feeling, having a good time and, and just funny. I mean, you could hear it now, the laughing. We just, we play off each other We're all the time. Team. Yep. Yeah. And it was, you know, a lot of fun. And, and I, I got to say, um, of all the awards I received and the nominations, the one nomination that meant the most to me, I think, was when we got nominated for the Art Directors Guild Award for the production design of NYPD Blue. It's not really a um, you know a good old boy network 
voting situation. It's it's uh, it's really respect, your peers. Yeah. yeah, the respect of your peers. And when they said when they nominated the show for a single camera series uh, for the art direction, it, it really meant a lot. And I got to say, there's four times that stand out in my career um, that I was scared to death working on. And one was my first real professional theatrical show that I designed, which was Harold Pinter's The Caretaker. It's a show that starts out of nowhere and ends out of nowhere. I designed the set for the Virginia Museum Theater in Richmond, and I was told halfway through the construction process that, oh, by the way, it had to be removed from the stage so that this travel club of women could watch a movie on Greece. So I was like, you mean I had to take the whole set down? <laughs> I went to my construction guy and I said, what can we do? I said, Let, let's put it all on casters and we'll just roll it out of the way for the screen when they drop the screen down. Then we can roll it back in for the regular production. And then I started thinking about it. I said, well, you know, this play starts out of nowhere and ends out of nowhere. So let's put some lights into the set that travel with it. And people will come into the theater and see this blank black stage. And then suddenly the set just rolls downstage and into the light and the whole scene starts. And then at the end, it rolls upstage out of the light and goes in the darkness. Brilliant. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great example of when you hit a roadblock, pivot and go a different direction. That ended up making everything work because it came from nowhere and went nowhere. And actually, it ended up winning an award, believe it or not. But I was scared to death to do that. was my first you know, real professional job. And then I did a um, was asked to take over as a young set designer in New York to take over a TV show called Texas. And I was scared to death to do that. And eventually it worked out fine. But it just the initial thing, I was just terrified. But the right time I was really terrified was I was traveling across country with my dog in a big old 73 Chevy Capri classic convertible with a Continental kit in the back end, 16 feet, three inches long in the summertime, heading for Los Angeles to take over as the art director on NYPD Blue. Now, I had never worked with unions on the West Coast. I had never worked in nighttime television, a single camera series on film, none of that. And so I was going into the unknown, into the abyss, and I was terrified. And I doubted, I knew what I would be able to do. I doubted if I you know, could pull this off. And no one knows that I know nothing about this medium of nighttime single camera series and stuff. But you slayed it, and you fooled everybody. I know, but I. It, but so, yeah, I think every every job I do, I there's that moment you feel like, oh my god, I'm I'm in over my head. And if you just soldier past that moment, it all comes through. But there's that moment you just want to quit and run and hide. I just wanted to bring that up. That every show you start, there's that's something, new, right? Yeah. There's something you doubt. You don't know if you can pull it off for the budget or the locations or whatever it is. But the timing, everything. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's, it's just, a, a lot of challenges that are involved in all of it. And since so many people in so many different departments are experiencing the same thing, you know, you have to kind of stay on your path and get through with your department and your team. You mentioned before your website of all your different versions of one location. Uh -huh. Tell us where to find your website. And uh, I, I want everybody to know it also includes your amazing paintings and sculptures and models because uh, uh, above and beyond being a production designer, you are a true artist in your own right. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, um, actually, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a computer guy. I'm a pencil guy. But early on, it got to the point of you needed to have a website for producers to see your stuff because they didn't want you to come in with your portfolio anymore and do one-on-one. -on -one. They just wanted to look at it, and then they decide if they wanted to hire you or not. And so I started to do this. I did a website, and I did it through my Apple. I did an iWeb, which is kind of like a way of doing it for cheap and for free. And so it's not like fancy. and It's not big screen pictures and stuff. But if you Google rchankins.com, it'll pull up to my website. It's a little convoluted stuff, but if you go to like, uh, it's broken down to locations and backlots and shows that I've done. And, and on one section, you can do a slideshow and it's called uh, uh, Same Building, Different Look, I think it is. And you can just kind of go through that and just see how everything's changed on this one building on the back lot. And I wanted to say this, there were sometimes 
we would actually dress one side of the street for a crime scene, and then the other side of the street would be for another scene in, in the script. And then we'd have maybe a, a third scene we'd have to do. And so what we do is we'd shoot one side of the street, and then the cameras would turn around and shoot the other side of the street for the other scene. And while they were doing that, we would be on the first side of the street, changing the whole look of it. And sometimes it would be like we'd have roll downs and all this stuff and barricades up and graffiti and stuff on the first scene. And then the cameras would turn around and shoot the other side of the street. And while they were doing that, we're taking all the roll downs away. And underneath them, it's dressed for a whole different thing, like a restaurant and maybe an antique store and a whole different look. Um, and then while they would shoot that scene, we would take the other side of the street and graffitiize it and trash it up so they could shoot a fourth scene. And all they would be doing is turn the camera to a different direction. That made them love us even more. <laughs> oh, and yeah. That is a, the quintessential Richard C. Hankins planning. Thank you so much for giving us the whole rundown on New York units and in particular NYPD Blue. It's been an incredible discussion. I am going to show everybody some of these changeovers on Instagram. So check out oh. my Instagram at Beth Kushnick, and you'll be able to see all the things we've talked about. Beth, um, I, I just can't say enough how much I admire her, and um, she has had an incredible life. She just soldiers on and is an inspiration to anybody, I think, Uh that she still has a sense of humor and she's still incredibly creative and still has an incredible amount of drive. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I admire so her so old. much. <laughs> oh, aren't we all? Aren't we all? The, the, the picture in the attic just gets worse and worse. But <laughs> I want to encourage all of our listeners that we always ask you guys to send in your questions for Beth. But please also, if you have any questions for Richard, I know he would be happy to answer any of your questions that you have about his work. Please go take a look and see his website and then definitely get, get back with us through Instagram with Beth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, if you have any questions for me, you know, please oh, pass yeah, them Oh, yeah, I know on. where to find you. Yeah, <laughs> we'll track yeah. them down. <laughs> she knows where all the bodies are buried. <laughs> I love it. Richard, you've yeah. been a complete delight. We'd love to have you back on another episode. We'll have to find some some specific little niche little thing that you guys did together that we can talk about. Oh, yeah, I'd love to do it again. I mean, I we, we sure had to cover an awful lot. Um, and I know. I still have... You guys did a lot together. And we, I still have a, a lot of notes that, that, you know, but yeah, I, love I, it. I, I had a good time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much to Richard for uh, sharing our fantastic history and past wonderful work together with all the listeners. It's been super fun. We hope you guys have enjoyed our interview with Richard Hankins today and getting to know a little bit more about second units and how movies and TV shows are shot just like a teeny tiny bit in New York, but you guys wouldn't know it as watchers. You think that we've been spending our whole time in New York City thanks to the magic of Beth and Richard. Love it so much. We want to encourage all of our fans to write in and leave comments on our Instagram and over on Apple Podcasts. If you like it, we may read your comment on air. Hey guys, producer Mike here. We just want to take a moment to remind you to leave us five-star reviews at Apple Podcasts or leave us reviews and comments at Beth's Instagram at Beth Kushnick or at Pod Clubhouse's Instagram, which is at Pod Clubhouse. If we uh, pick yours, we'll read it on air, just like NYC Alex One's review. Five stars. Sit down with an actual design star. Beth walks among the giants of the set design world, and it's incredible to have the opportunity to get the inside scoop on her process and to see interiors through her eyes. Part Hollywood design tell-all, part practical how-to, and 100% inspirational. It all comes together to lend we listeners some of Beth's genius to use in our own design projects, however humble or grand. It feels like we're getting a million-dollar experience all for free. Thank you, NYC Alex One, for that review. And guys, again, send us your reviews. We'll read them on air. Please uh, follow me on Instagram at Beth Kushnick and send me photos, anything you need for your decorator by your side to observe and comment on. I'm here to help you uh, for all your set decorating and interior design needs. 
I am so excited, Beth, because I know there's going to be projects coming down the pike as people are transitioning from working completely at home and also trying to work in the at the office now. And kids are going back and forth between school and home. And I think there's going to be a lot of new projects that people are embarking on as spring is coming and everyone's wanting to liven things up. It's going to be so exciting. Yeah, we're going to cover it all. Yay! Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home at Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. It helps a lot in promotion of the show. Five stars, people. Thanks for listening. Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home is an original Pod Clubhouse production. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.